0: Good afternoon, Xavier. Thank you very much for joining us on A Manufacturing Conversations.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Pleasure on mine. So the first question we like to ask our guests is always, "How did you get here, and what do you make?" What's your answer?
1: I studied mechatronic engineering and computer science at the University of Western Australia, and resulting from a thesis I did there, I started a company which is called Advanced Navigation, and we do neural network-based navigation systems and robotics systems. So we service a range of industries across land, sea, airspace and marine and a whole different range of products servicing those industries.
0: That's a sort of skimming over the surface of what you do, tell me if you'd like to go back to the beginning a little more about the sort of big idea that you got started on and how you decided to take it in the direction you did because you might have just made it into a bit of software that you sold as a service or mm. whatever, you didn't need to be making end products. Tell me about taking that one kernel of a good idea and turning it into this. Sure.
1: So yeah, when I started at university in 2004, I guess I was with all my friends from high school. We were going through and choosing our which course strain of engineering we wanted to do. In that process, I met a really interesting guy in the engineering faculty who was Working on artificial brains in a computer. And that's what we now know as neural networks or the prominent form of AI. And so I found that whole concept really interesting and the capacity to do some really powerful things with that really like profound. So I went into that stream of engineering. He was running the mechatronic engineering faculty. And I, so I spent the next, I think it was seven years total working on that kind of technology. So neural networks, as well as the whole rest of the mechatronics and computer science space. It took me to a thesis in 2009, which was a neural network alternative to the Kalman filter. Now, the Kalman filter is this algorithm that's used everywhere. You find it in your car, your home, in business everywhere. So it's really where there's sensors, you'll find the Kalman filter. And what its main thing it accomplishes is it removes errors from sensors. So it allows you to have a sensor that has some error and all sensors have errors and then take that away. And as a result, you can get a much more accurate reading from the sensor. In the case of my thesis, it was related to navigation. So a strain of navigation called inertial navigation where you use accelerometers and gyroscopes to navigate and find where you are from a starting position and so that had really promising results we saw about a 10 times performance improvement over the current kalman filter technology it still had a few glitches in 2010 so spent the next couple of years working on it and 2012 everything was performing perfectly And it was ready for commercialization. So that's where I got together with my business partner, Chris, who's very specialized in sensors, the actual sensor hardware design, microelectronics, and things like that. And we combined together to form advanced navigation to sell both that neural network algorithm technology combined with advanced hardware products. Right. And how did you meet Chris? So Chris and I had gone to university together. We'd met about five years earlier and knew each other through the engineering department. Also, we were quite close friends and we'd lived together. We'd been in the same share house and everything like that. So we had quite a close working relationship, but also developed some technology with him. So we had a good engineering relationship as well, where we knew we worked really well together. It's kind of like a a really good relationship to sort of found and start developing products together.
0: Yeah, sure. You don't always want to go into business with your friends because you could do badly in the business and the friendship would, you know, (laughs) turn into something nasty as a result, but I guess it's worked out for you guys.
1: Well, absolutely. I think, you know, you need to trust the people that you're getting into deeply with business. I guess... If you, if you don't have a previous relationship, it can be hard to develop that trust initially and then it can actually affect the business. So I think having that sort of five years of prior relationship and sort of living together is pretty critically important to be able to trust them, trust the person that you've sort of found in the business with to just sort of give them the autonomy they need to exercise themselves effectively in the business. And I think that's really critical to how we work together as co CEOs in the business. So basically, as co CEOs we don't both cover the same things. We cover separate areas to make sure we're getting bang for buck with co CEOs. I guess the the benefit of having co CEOs is you can cover double the territory. But to do that each co-CEO needs to trust that the other co-CEO has has it 100%. And so it takes deep trust for a co-CEO relationship to work effectively.
0: And so what's your patch and his patch essentially?
1: So my patch is primarily the algorithms, software, IT support, comms marketing. And his patch would be hardware, procurement, manufacturing and sort of sales and finance. So he was a double degree engineering commerce Mm -hmm. and so yeah he's he's really focused on that side of the business
0: so you got started in 2012 i think you said what was you know your first product and your first customer
1: so the first product was spatial so spatial was what we launched which was the first neural network based inertial navigation system and at the time very market leading right so when we actually published the specs and started publishing the papers on it People just didn't believe it. They thought that we were making it up. <laughs> we found it. We thought this thing is so revolutionary, it's going to sell very quickly. But actually, then we found a bigger problem in getting people to actually trust that. And so that we've. Can be true. Yes, that's right. People just think, oh, well, it's made up. And so what we found was the best way to actually get those sales happening was to go to trade shows and get demo units in people's hands so they could actually see that performance for themselves. And so we would do free loan units, free demo units, and we'd go and demonstrate them at people's factories. And that, I think that was really key to picking up the business quickly. And your sort of commercial breakthrough, if you could remember it, what was it? Yeah, so one of the first key customers was Bombardier. So they do trains and planes in Canada, out of Montreal. And so, yeah, I was living in Montreal at the time, working that deal, as well as a few US deals. And we had a breakthrough with them on the trains that they were developing. That was really a big stepping stone that allowed us to sort of really push forward from there.
0: That was about not long after you got started, like 2012, 2013?
1: So I think we have been going for about seven months until we had our first big break. And then they kind of, they dropped from there. So other companies we have been working with or trying to work with, like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, a few of the US companies. They sort of fell into our laps after that.
0: And so a similar question, you know, as a first first major customer, who was your first major investor?
1: Yeah, sure. So we bootstrapped it from the start. So me and Chris had both saved up as much money as we could. I think we each had $70,000 each. And then we took out as many loans and credit cards as we could with the banks. And that was really how we funded the business and to get to a point of profitability. Fortunately, within the first year, we became profitable and were able to sustain for the next five years and grow organically through that five years. And it really occurred to us what we really need to do if we want to move faster and grow faster. We really need to have some like capital invested. So We have been reached out to by investors a number of times, but one of the ones that really struck our interest was our innovation fund. And so they became the first investor in the group in 2017.
0: You mentioned one of your
1: mentors, the head
0: of school, I think you've said at UWA. What was his name? Just out of curiosity, I didn't catch that earlier.
1: So his name was Adrian Keating okay commercially
0: speaking who are your mentors who are some of the people that said look this guy's got a good idea but he's a bit green hasn't run a business before let's help him out
1: so i guess we probably took a little bit of an unusual path in that we didn't necessarily have mentors as we went through i'd had a few businesses prior so i had a computer business and then like a dj business and a few things throughout university so I'd had a few failures and a couple of wins and so it had kind of taught me a lot through that period but we didn't really have mentors until OAF came on board and then OAF would have become really the first mentors there through the board interactions where they kind of guided us and and sort of pushed us to I guess improve our reporting and a few things like that the financial reporting the sales reporting all of those kinds of things. Not
0: nope. All promising hardware companies here are able to raise capital so successfully as you've been able to. What do you think you've done that's made you reasonably good at it, it looks like, based on the size of your last funding rounds?
1: So I think one of the key things for us is probably our technology moat. And, uh, you know, you hear this moat terminology in the investment space. And what it really means is, you know, a moat was obviously the water around a castle back in the olden days that would stop people getting through. It's a similar thing today that stops people being able to replicate a company easily.
0: Being able to say defensible, this is
1: defensible technology, et cetera. So yeah, having having some very unique IP, intellectual property has been key to that. So still we're the only company to have neural network based navigation systems on the market. So I think that most is a key part of our journey.
0: saw you guys a few weeks ago at the opening of your Tech Lab facility and we're speaking here at a different office. How many little parts of your empire are they and where are they spread and who does what at each?
1: Sure. Here in Sydney, we are now down to two facilities. So we have the headquarters which are in right now and Tech Labs is now our sole manufacturing facility in new south wales and then we have our canberra photonics research facility we have our newcastle radio research facility our brisbane uav research facility and our perth underwater research and manufacturing facility
0: i think the afr article when you open the new facility it mentioned that it had capacity for $3 billion worth of products and that you're a company that may or may not be worth a billion dollars. Can you say if those figures are accurate?
1: So, look, the $3 billion is accurate. So, that is the current manufacturing capacity. In fact, as we expand within the building, that will increase as well beyond the three to higher numbers than that. In terms of evaluation, we have publicly listed investors, which prohibits us talking about things Most like days. this publicly.
0: I thought that might be your answer, but it all has to ask. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about the use of being co-located with Space Machines Company, excuse me, and the other tenants at Tech Lab.
1: Tech Labs is really what they wanted to do there is take... Take companies that are doing high tech manufacturing and put them all in the same space. And some of the very expensive things that you need to do in some of those high tech manufacturing industries, you can share the cost of those. Mm-hmm. One of the examples where we share the cost of things is both space machines and advanced navigation need clean room facilities. And these are, I mean, you have various levels of clean room. A hospital itself has a clean room level where they filter the air and all of that. And you kind of get grades higher and higher and higher. And the, the grade that we require and the grade that also space machines require is quite a few levels higher than the hospital grade. And actually, when you come to running the numbers on what those facilities cost, to have that, it's actually a very high number to build that. So being able to share that within multiple companies who require things like cleanroom facilities and, and other advanced manufacturing facility requirements means that we can bring down the cost for everyone and really push forward high-tech manufacturing in Australia. And the
0: release from the day mentioned that you have three ongoing projects that will be assisted by being located there and near companies and academics who would be able to share the R&D burden with you guys. Would you like to say anything about the usefulness of that, please?
1: Yeah, absolutely. One of the really exciting projects that we're working on right now is a technology that's getting put into the Sydney's underground train stations. And that's to help visually impaired users navigate to their to get onto the train so through the underground train station and then onto the train so for people who aren't aware gps doesn't work underground you need to use different technologies and in this case we're using a technology called ultra wideband and then that technology can pinpoint users smartphones to within a centimeter and then give them voice directions on which way they need to turn how many meters forward how many footsteps forward they need to go And really guide those visually impaired users very accurately through a train station, which can be a bit of a hazardous area for those disabilities. So that's one of the really exciting things. One of the other ones is our cloud ground control technology, which is a drone fleet control platform where we're doing live 3D mapping. So you can basically fly over a site and generate a 3D map in real time, and then the drone can fly over again or the series of drones and rebuild the map in real time. So really a huge deal for surveying industries. And then the third technology relates to our LIDAR photonics technology, which is, people may know LIDAR, and so this is similar to LIDAR, but has velocity and a number of other parameters as well. So you can detect the density of surfaces and material properties using laser, and it allows you to have a very good situational awareness. So I guess when you're in the robotic space and autonomy, situational awareness is everything. And so this really pumps up your situational awareness with all this extra data that the LIDAR system can provide you relative to a LIDAR system.
0: Right, and you are taking that to some exciting places, namely the moon. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the the LIDAR technology and our defog technology is on the next mission to the moon. With intuitive machines and NASA, it's used for the lander. And basically the INS, so the DFOG inertial navigation technology, allows it to position and then the LIDARF technology allows it to look at the ground and identify an appropriate landing site all fully autonomously, check the structure of the ground that it's going to be landing on and verify that, you know, it's going to hold the weight of the lander's feet through the density and everything like that of the materials come down and very precisely through the velocimetry, land precisely. So it really takes all the risk out of automatic landing, which is historically a very risky procedure.
0: What are some of the challenges when you're developing light out for that
1: application? So I guess the two primary challenges in space are radiation and vacuum. And I would definitely say of the two, radiation is a lot harder. Typically, when you're faced with radiation, the easiest way to overcome it is lead shielding. And that's just not an option because, you know, when you're going up in space, every gram counts. Every gram costs a lot of money to send up. So you have to find really interesting ways to overcome radiation requirements. And those can be both hardware and software methods. I mean, it's it's quite a deep field to go into. But yeah, it is very challenging dealing with the radiation requirements. The vacuum as well it requires careful design consideration
0: you mentioned defogs earlier and you said at the launch the other day that you were one of only four companies in the world making strategic grade defogs could you please tell me about the significance of that and the rarity of the type of product that you're making
1: yeah there's only four companies in the world that can produce strategic grade fiber optic gyroscopes and they are produced on mass so they use very widely you know there's millions of them out there however yeah really all of those millions come out of only a handful of facilities around the world so you've got Germany France and the USA really the primary countries that are producing that technology and now Australia so it really it gives Australia a really important capability and a strategic capability of being able to produce that when you need to use that technology for things like navigation and marine vessels spacecraft, all sorts of survey activities. So, you know, they're a very widely used technology across many industries and having that capability in-house or in the country is really a big benefit for Australia.
0: And that, are they using the old stuff the Kalman filter for their product or are they moved on to something? Yeah,
1: all the all the competitors are still using the Kalman filter. All right, still stuck in the 60s. <laughs>
0: I'd like to know about supply chain slash manufacturing stuff. You're making very complex goods with a lot of complex inputs, very exacting standards for fibre optics and whatever else you bring in and transforming. Tell me about some of what goes on and where material's coming from.
1: I guess we have a whole procurement team that manages that. It is a complex task and for every supplier you have, you need to have a backup supplier. To make sure you can still continue to deliver if a primary supplier goes down so and sometimes you'll even just alternate the suppliers to make sure you're testing the backup supplier so yeah there's a lot of work qualifying suppliers and maintaining supplier relationships and making sure that we have that ability to deliver to our customers what we need to deliver
0: and is the very small population of electronics manufacturers in australia something of a difficulty for what you do
1: Look, it is a small community, but it means you have a bigger power in the community, I guess. So if you're buying a larger volume in a smaller pool, you have more sway. So it, it can actually have advantages. However, yeah, a lot of our equipment still does have to come from the United States or Europe, just due to there not being any facilities here. Your MEMS, for example, there's no one in Australia that makes those. No, that's right.
0: They're pretty considerable amount of revenues you're spending on R&D 20% tell me about you know your R&D ambitions what it looks like and if there might be any sort of customer or product case studies that are worth mentioning as sort of a way to highlight that
1: look it you know, all kind of probably ties back to Advanced Navigation's mission statement, which is to be the catalyst of the autonomy revolution. So we're working with a lot of technologies that are powering that autonomy revolution. So our technology is smaller, lighter, lower power, higher performing, higher reliability, and that really enables a lot of platforms. So... For example, on the space application that we talked about earlier, you know, Intuitive Machines has come up with this hopper concept and it's basically rather than using a rover to get around on the moon's surface, which is a wheeled little vehicle, you know, they've come up with this concept of the hopper which basically just does these little hops. It takes off an autonomous takeoff and an autonomous landing. And in the past that would have been unthinkable because autonomous landings are quite high risk. But because of the light out technology, they're now very reliable, and that's really enabled this platform, the hopper. It's a similar case with things like the Airbus Zephyr, which is a low-altitude pseudo-satellite. So it's basically a fixed-wing aircraft powered by solar that can stay up in the sky for five years at a time. And it works like a really high-performing satellite. So satellites are in space so they have to go through the ionosphere and troposphere which degrades the signals along the way if you're actually within the earth's orbit below the troposphere and ionosphere you can beam signals down without the losses of that and it really gives you some significant advantages and Airbus Zephyr is a platform that's designed to tackle that so That is also known as the Internet Over Africa program, and that was its initial foundation was the idea was to be able to provide internet over all regions of Africa, and it's kind of grown from there to really have a lot more application than that.
0: Right. So you you sell some sort of, for want of a better term, off-the-shelf products, but there's a lot of stuff that's sort of done to answer a customer problem, like that for example
1: typically it's all off-the-shelf products so our off-the-shelf products can be used to enable platforms right
0: yeah another feature of your company's history has been your work in collaboration with universities notably ANU and RMIT not every company is able to work successfully with universities how come you guys have seemingly been able to nail it what can I guess people learn from what you guys are doing and something on that please
1: Yeah, so I think from my experience where things fall over with the university is where it comes to IP arrangements. Mm -hmm. And I think both ANU and RMIT have been very forward-thinking in that regard and really embraced a model of rather than the university trying to hold the IP and then licence it, which always causes some concern for companies. You know, instead they let the IP go out, spin it out as a company, and then they have shares in the company. And so ANU then holds shares or the university holds shares in whatever resulting companies that are owning that IP, and it's a much better model for IP ownership. And it's really allowed us to move really quickly with like ANU and RMIT on working these technologies. And so some really incredible technologies being developed at Australian academic institutions, and we have really been able to embrace those ones that are really forward-thinking on their IP strategies.
0: Obviously, you know, for the last few years, unemployment has been pretty low and skilled people, such as engineers of various disciplines, have been pretty hard to come by based on most of the people I talk to who run companies. Tell me about how the skills issue has affected you guys and how you deal with the, you know, shortage of talent.
1: Hmm. Yeah, so I think we see some shortages in areas, but I think the difference... Our employees are really excited about the technology that we're developing and the impacts that it has. And so that that ability to excite people really means we haven't probably had as much difficulty in the hiring space as some other companies have had. So I guess really it's about taking your employees on the journey with you as well. You know, making sure that they're a big part of the company at Advanced Navigation. We look on our people as one of the biggest parts of the business, right? It's one of the most critical factors of the business. So really bringing those people on the journey with you and, you know, exciting them in what they're developing, I think, has been critical to our success in hiring.
0: What's your workforce look like? I imagine it's pretty scientific and engineering and technician heavy. Do you sort of have any idea of what percentage or of a PhD level or of a degree level or whatever?
1: I think we did a check. So I think it was something like 93% had a bachelor's degree or higher. I don't know the number of PhDs, mm-hmm. but, yeah, it is a. High proportion. There's a lot of lot of research and development happening. It's a big part of the business. Yeah, so it's a high high proportion of engineers and and skilled trades and things like that of the business.
0: And the last question I like to ask guests, yourself included, is is there an issue within manufacturing that isn't getting the attention it deserves at the moment from politicians, the media, the public? What's your opinion here?
1: Look, we've probably heard over the last ten or so years that stuff we hear in the media is Australia's losing manufacturing capabilities and then really in the last you know less than five years there's been a real drive to try and recover some of the manufacturing capabilities and in particular high-tech manufacturing so I think it is critical that Australia has a number of sovereign manufacturing capabilities especially with the geopolitical instability that we're seeing at the moment being able to be somewhat self-sufficient is really critical for australia so i think some of the manufacturing capabilities we may have lost it's really good to sort of bring those back through a high-tech manufacturing approach where we can keep the costs down and i think it's really exciting to see that happening at the moment so you know there's a whole heap of high-tech manufacturing ventures that have been opening and it's really good to see that happening in australia I believe that's everything I wanted to ask you,
0: Xavier. So thank you very much for being on A Manufacturing Conversations. Thanks a lot.